Let's open our Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 11. Lord willing, we'll get through 11 and 12, but we may only get through 11. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy going through the Word of God is, you know, as you look at the lives of these uh, people that we're talking about, and these aren't fictional people, these, this is real history. You know, uh, when you think of Jonah and you think of some of these other things, you know, we, we equate them to Bible stories. And I would like to encourage you to get the word stories out of your vocabulary when it comes to the Bible. Because it, uh, when, you, when you hear the word story, it automatically, I think, fiction, right? Something that's not true. But there is nothing in the Bible that is fiction. Uh, it's, it's written history. It's prophecy. And as we go through the... Uh, account here in Chronicles, the, this is real history. And what is so wonderful about it is uh, it's, it's so multifaceted. Uh, there's obviously a message, uh, the central message of redemption uh, all throughout the Bible. But even as we look at the characters in the Bible and we see their lives and the things that they struggled with and, and, and how God dealt with them and, and the things that God did and the things that God didn't do. And we learn a lot about the character of God as we go through the Bible. So I'd encourage you to really pay attention as we go through these things. Because as we looked at the life of David, I mean, just think about what a great God we serve. Because of all the people on the earth, of all, you know, um, David was one of these great characters. But he had some really great failings. I mean, the, the sin with Bathsheba, the adultery, and then killing her husband to cover up his sin, and then the census that he took at the end of his life that cost Israel over 3,000 lives of people, innocent people, well, relatively innocent. And yet God will call him, after all of this, God would call him the sweet psalmist of Israel. He would call him the man after God's own heart. And David had his troubles, but one thing that David didn't have a problem with was idolatry. Unlike Solomon, his son. His Solomon, uh, David's son, fell into idolatry later on in his reign as king. And he came around because God had given him great wisdom. And with great wisdom comes a reckoning, comes an understanding, uh, comes an accountability and there comes a point, isn't it true, that finally, at some point, after your sin has run its race, you, at somewhere down the road, the wheel falls off the front. You know, it starts to shake, and then it falls off, and, 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 and you realize the bottom falls out of everything, and there you are, empty and broken and hurting and in a worse condition than you've ever been. But David didn't have a problem with idolatry. Solomon did. And then we look at now as we, as we see this once united kingdom of Israel that started with Saul, King Saul. And then he spent 40 years in his reign and then he passes. David is raised up another 40 years. And then finally Solomon, another 40 years. And probably the greatest 40 years, at least the first half of that 40 years, Probably the, the greatest Israel has ever known. Not being uh, surrounded by their enemies and their enemies at bay and everyone at peace. The money's flowing. The worship is happening. Everything is just going great. It's, it's like a vacation in the Bahamas that, you know, and it never rains and it's just, you know, crack crab on the beach. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe you don't. I, don't, I certainly don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but, but the idea, everything is just going well. But to see the way God deals with people, to me, is encouraging. And to know that we are no different than these people in the Bible. We're no different. And, and when you see God deal with them in certain ways, and then you see how God deals with you, you're like, you know what, we really are no different. And you have to remember that. Because even Paul the Apostle, with all of his intelligence, with all of his genius, and there, there are people who, uh, people who really know this stuff say that he had one of the most brilliant minds of his time. And yet God had ways of dealing with Paul. He was originally called Saul, a persecutor of the church. And, and, and look how God used this man's life, the one who used to hail people out of their houses and bring them into jail for their faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's the one who is preaching the gospel. What an amazing God we serve, how he can take a life and change it around. Has he changed your life? 
Do you remember your, your worst days? And then now fast forward to where you're at now, and hopefully there's a, a great distance between that old man and the new man uh, that you are now. And there ought to be, because that's God's plan and design for your life. We're being conformed uh, to his image and from glory to glory, and that is a process. It's a process of sanctification, and you and I are in that process. How beautiful, isn't it? It's not easy, is it, going through the process? And these men that we're going to read about tonight are going through that process. And we're seeing how God deals with them. And God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so be encouraged as we look at this. So as we look at this, there's obviously, we're right in the midst of this passage in Chronicles, these chapters, where the kingdom is going to split in two. And it's going to be a watershed moment in the, in the history of Israel. And uh, after Solomon's death, we know that there is going to be two rivals that are going to be forming. And Rehoboam, who was uh, Solomon's son, and we're also going to see Jeroboam, who was really nothing more than a servant of Solomon. Now they are going to be at odds with one another and uh, some of the things uh, that we're going to be able to take away, I believe, from tonight's chapter and perhaps uh, chapter 12 as well is just the wonderful omniscience of God. The fact that God knows all things. He can't learn anything. And that ought to shock you uh, unless you uh, have heard this before, but God can't learn anything. Because when he is the master, he knows all things. He created all things just exactly as he said. There's nothing that he doesn't know. And so, therefore, he cannot learn. You and I are constantly learning, but he is omniscience. And we're going to see that tonight. And we're going to see the grace and provision of God raising up a man of God to avert disaster. And throughout history, God raises up men and women of God to not only be prophets and prophetesses, and sometimes just to warn and to show up on the scene to avert disaster of what could be so much worse and a man of God comes along and changes things and why is that because God loves people he the Bible says he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked that's one thing we have to remember in the day we live in because we see a lot of wickedness and if you're like me you're you see justice just evaporating in our country before us and that that creates a resentment in your heart and you want to see things done rightly right but we have to understand that God is going to take care of things. And we don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. He's going to take care of it. But in the process, it may be frustrating. But we have to keep our eyes on Jesus and not on the headlines of the news. It'll, and trust me, I know more than anybody probably in this room of how that can just, it can really wear at you like water on sandstone. And so be very careful. So we're going to see that. And we're also going to see the gift of discernment at play uh, tonight. And also the strategy of the enemy in dividing and conquering. Have you ever heard this word, dividing and conquering? It's a, it's a military, uh, um, something the military does. It's, it's, it's a tool to divide and conquer. You don't have to, there's many ways to divide and conquer or to destroy a people. And one of them is to divide them and then conquer them one, one bit at a time. And we're going to see some of that tonight. But let's look at verse one of chapter 11. Notice what it says. It says, now when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, because remember he was, um, he was in Shechem where he, uh, just a little bit north, about 24 miles or so north uh, west of Jerusalem. He was crowned king there, and he came to Jerusalem. He assembled from the house of Judah and Benjamin 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel. Because now uh, Israel, uh, Jeroboam, and the northern ten tribes, they have, uh, they're, they're going to be breaking apart, and the people of Israel... Uh, remember, Rehoboam wasn't listening. He wasn't um, taking the advice of the prophet and, and actually of the elders of his father. He rejected their counsel, listened to the young men, and he followed the young men's device, and it caused a great rift between Israel, splintering it in two. And now Jeroboam is going to be king over the northern ten tribes, and now Rehoboam is going to be tri uh, king over uh, Judah and Benjamin. 
And it says that after that split, that uh, Rehoboam came back to Jerusalem. He assembled the house of Judah, notice, and Benjamin, 188,000 men who were warriors to fight against Israel, that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, or to himself. And notice what it says in verse 2, But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, uh, his name means heard by Jehovah, it's kind of a nice, a nice name, and the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, notice, and underline this phrase, the man of God. The Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God. And, and again, underline that. And this is the first mention in the Bible of this phrase, man of God. I'm sorry, the first mention of this phrase, man of God, excuse me, in the Bible is in Deuteronomy. This is not the first one, I'm sorry. The first one is in Deuteronomy 33, verse 1, and it's in the context, it's referring to Moses. But this phrase occurs 76 times in the Old Testament, referring to Moses. It refers to the angel of the Lord. It refers to Samuel and others. And it occurs two times in the New Testament, one, a specific reference to Timothy, Paul's protege, and the other in a more general sense. And notice what God says to this man of God. He says, speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, saying, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your brethren. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Underline that phrase too. This thing is from me. Therefore, they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from attacking Jeroboam. So they, this man of God, he shows up on the scene at a very critical moment because they were about ready to go to blows with one another. And there would be no doubt great bloodshed on both sides of this battle. And isn't it a shame that that a family like this, I mean, we're talking about brethren. These are, this would be like, you know, uh, you know, all the Italians fighting against the Italians or all the Germans fighting, you know, people groups and Americans fighting against Americans. You know, it's really sad when this kind of thing happens. They used to be the people of God and they had this wonderful communion and this togetherness, this oneness, and now they are at, at odds with one another, bitter and angry. But notice this man of God comes and he delivers a message. You shall not do this, guys. Don't go to war with your brethren in the north. And, and, and he listens. And whenever judgment is coming or when God is seeking to avert disaster, he has sent a man of God. And here is one of them, this prophet. He comes to avert disaster. And it would have been bad. We see this in the New Testament, too, in uh, the book of Acts. Uh, turn with me to Acts 27, if you would. It is a, what many call uh, the Apostle Paul's fourth journey. He really had three missionary journeys. This could be considered a fourth one. When he's on his way, finally now, to Rome, and he's going to face Caesar, and ultimately Nero, Caesar Nero, will behead Paul. We will find that out. But on his way from, from Jerusalem all the way across the Mediterranean and under Cyprus and underneath uh, Turkey, and as they would travel in the Mediterranean close to land as they could, it says that, and when it was, and, and I'm going to read uh, some uh, verses. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but uh, chunks of it we will. And I think you'll see that Paul the Apostle was just that man of God. Notice what it says. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, so there's a whole bunch of prisoners. I think it was 276 prisoners. They got on a, a ship with um, soldiers, Roman soldiers, and they were going to travel uh, from Israel. They were going to go across the Mediterranean and ultimately come to Rome, and they would be put in prison there. And so Paul is among those prisoners, and it says, and, and then it was decided that we should sail to Italy, and they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. And so, entering a ship of Adramatium, 
we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Now, as we're reading this, this is an eyewitness account of something that was happening. Because I don't know about you, but when I read this, I am so engaged because I, I grew up on the ocean. And I've been out in rough seas and rough waters. And all of this is very, um, the imagery here is so intense to me. And I, it's almost like I'm there. I can see the movie in my head. And it goes on, it says, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of the Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. And when, he had put, uh, when, when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus. So if you're thinking of a map and you think of where Israel is, Cyprus is that island uh, just to the west of Israel in the Mediterranean, just a little bit north. Because they did this because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. And when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to the place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. And so notice what God has, has done here. It gets better. It, this sounds like doom and gloom right now, and it is. But he's telling them, we shouldn't be going. <laughs> You know, this, this, is going to be, this is not going to end well, I can tell you right now. And God gave him a word of knowledge, gave him a prophecy, whatever you want to call it. But nevertheless, verse 11, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than the things spoken of by Paul. And because the harbor was not, able, was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. In the, um, and, and so it's kind of interesting. So they, they, they scoff at his, uh, his counsel, and the mob rules. The majority said, let's go on. So they did. They went on. And, um, and it says that when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire putting out to sea, they sailed close to Crete. So you can see, you can vision in your mind them going from the east, going west in the Mediterranean. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. That sounds like a wonderful ride at Disney World, doesn't it? <laughs> and I'm sure it was out in the Mediterranean. Euroclidon. And so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And you can read um, the in-between parts, but I'm going to get to the points that I want to talk to. But go down to verse 19 now. It continues on in the journey. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our hands. So things are getting really desperate. They're getting really bad. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them. And he says, men, and don't you love this? I told you so. <laughs> Don't you love when people tell you that? He says, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart. And here is the wonderful comfort of the man of God. The, the man of God warns. He, he tells in advance. And this is what could happen. And, and now he brings the comfort here, right? And, and this is so like God. He warns you, but then, hey, it's not over. You got to listen now. Because things are going to get a lot worse, but I need you to listen and you'll be saved. And notice what Paul, the man of God, does at the right time. And think of this. Paul is considered a prisoner. He's really not a criminal. But he's a prisoner and he's on a boat with seven, 276 real criminals. People who've done really bad things. And what, the, what I love about this is how God sends a man of God with them, endures all of this with them, tells them what to do, and ultimately saves them. So when anybody says, well, God just likes to beat on wicked people, it, no, that's not true. In fact, he sent Paul to be among them 
276 people who really did deserve probably to die in the waters of the Mediterranean, and yet God sent a man of God to avert disaster. Notice, he says, And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And so now they're, they're listening to him. He says, For there stood by me this night an angel of the Lord, of, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Notice what the angel says. You, you will go to, to Caesar, Paul, and everyone with you is going to go with you. And see, God is in control, isn't he? He sends the man of God at the right time, at the right season, and he's going to save Paul. God told Paul when he saved him, remember on the road to Damascus? He says, I will teach him how the things that he must suffer for my namesake. And then he told Paul personally that he would go before kings. And he told him, Jesus told him, that he would go to Rome. And if Jesus says you're going to Rome, you're not going to perish on your way to Rome. You are going to get to Rome. Do you follow? When Jesus told the disciples, we're going across this Sea of Galilee, they got across the Sea of Galilee, even when the winds and the water were blowing in the boat and they thought they were going to perish. And they said, Lord, save us. And he goes, oh, you have little faith. And he spoke a word and the seas just calmed right down. The man of God. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Notice this. I mean, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the 14th night had come, verse 27, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were, they were drawing near some land. And they took some soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. And then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, notice what the man of God says. When they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out the anchors from the, the prow or the front of the boat, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And I think there's something wonderful about that too, just concerning the gospel. You know, are you in the ship tonight? Are you in the ship you know, many people in the world, they're outside of the ship. The, the, the ship is going home. The ship is our, our, our salvation to get to home, to get to heaven. And are you outside of the ship or are you in the ship? If you're in Christ, you are in the ship. And you're happy to be there because he is there with you. Follow? I don't want to jump overboard. I don't want to test the waters. I don't want to tempt God even. I want to stay safe in his covert I want to stay safe in his comfort, in his protection, right? So then the soldiers, they, they see this. They cut the ropes of the skiff and they let it fall out. And think of what would have happened if God hadn't sent the man of God. All of these men right then would have perished. They would have all gotten in the boat. They would have all tried to get in the boat, tried to jump over, and they all would have perished. But the man of God says, don't do it. Just do as I say and you will live. And it requires obedience there, doesn't it? And there's another clue. Obedience. If you listen to God, you will live. You reject God and you're going to die. And yes, ultimately, physically, you will die one day. But ultimately, spiritually, if we reject God, if we reject him and we disobey him, one day we will stand before the great judge of all the earth and he will sentence us to the lake of fire. If you have rejected Christ. But notice, and I'm not going to go into the rest of this. You can read the whole, I would encourage you to read all, of 20, uh, all chapter 27. But the bottom line is, they get to the place that they're going ultimately. And all the men, all 276 men on board were safe. Because a man of God was there. And so now God sends a man of God at this critical moment in Israel's history, averting much bloodshed in a family that should have been close together, but now they are at odds with one another. 
God often does use a man of God to warn and oftentimes to give advice to avert disaster, whether it be a prophecy or a word of knowledge. And you know, would to God that rulers and politicians today would listen to godly men. You know, would to God there was, and sometimes there have been presidents who gathered some uh, pastors together at the White House. That's happened. Say, hey, let's pray. You know, tell me what's going on. What do you see? What's going on? What does the Bible say? It's happened on occasion. But, but for the most part, this doesn't happen in every country. The men of God are there, but they're shunned. They're put in prison. They're, they're, they're canceled. They're silenced. But those who listen to God do well, although their lives and their ministries may not be easy. Have you ever noticed that? If you obey God, is, is listening to God and being obedient to God, is it always easy? It isn't, is it? In fact, I find it's easier to compromise. It's easier to disobey God and, and, and not be honest, to not be truthful. It's much easier to do that, but there is a bill that gets paid at the end because it does catch up to you. There's no doubt about it, and all of us know this. We're old enough to have experienced it ourselves. So the man who listens to God does well, but it is not an easy road. In fact, I, uh, you know, if anybody tells you, come to Christ and all of your problems will be solved, well, there's a truth to that, but there's also a lie in that. I would rather somebody told me, come to Christ and you're going to find out really what life is all about. And it is true because you're going to feel the battle for the very first time in your life. Because now you'll be aware that there is a spiritual battle. And it's a battle between heaven and hell. And God and Satan. And we are the, 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 the subjects in between this battle of good and evil. And you are either on God's side or you are not on God's side. There is no middle ground. If you think you're in a middle ground, you've already chosen the enemy. You may not be a devil worshiper. And the devil is very happy with you not worshiping him. Just don't worship Jesus. A lot of people thinking, well, I'm, I, I, I can just do what I want. I don't have to worship Jesus, and I'll get to heaven. And if you're not born again, you will not go to heaven. But, I, um, but those who do not listen to God don't do well, and they ultimately reap what they sow. And even as a Christian, do you notice that? That you reap what you sow, isn't it true? In Galatians, Paul tells us, he says, Do not be deceived. This is Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. We all know the idea of sowing and reaping. A, a, a reaper throws out seed into the field. He's throwing seed. He's sowing seed and hoping to reap a great harvest. And what are what is your life? What are you doing with your life? And so... Are we throwing out good seed, or is our seed just dead? Are are, are we not throwing out seed at all? But by the grace of God, Rehoboam, he wasn't rebellious in this. He listened to the man of God. He listened to the voice of the Lord. And honestly, it was one of the few things that he did right in his life, by listening to what God said. And notice something, that the obedience of one man, the obedience of one man can save the lives of countless men who would have otherwise died in battle. I like what uh, Paul said in Romans, he made this comment, he says, For if by one man's offense, speaking of Adam in the the garden, and when when he and Eve sinned, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So in Adam, we were all dead, but in Christ, we are all made alive. One man can cause so much trouble, right? And this is true throughout history. One man makes a decision. The decision affects hundreds, sometimes thousands, sometimes millions. And being in leadership is not easy. There are many many voices, there's politics, there's bureaucracy, there's friendships, there's obligations, there's manipulations, there's promises and oaths. And it's important to be led by the Spirit of God, and not just in church leadership, but in any leadership, 
in any leadership, even secular leadership. You got to do the right thing. You can't let other things cloud out that thing that God has called you to do. You have to follow and, and do the right thing and not be cooking the books because it's your friend or not be cutting corners because it's somebody you know in your family. We have to live lives of integrity. That's why the Lord's half-brother, James, he warned us. He says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And, and that's a frightening verse to me because I spend most of my time teaching, and I love doing that. But I'm also aware that as a teacher of the word of God, God's going to hold me in under greater, stricter Judgment, Not judgment in the sense of losing my salvation or something like that. But it's a very serious thing to be in any, um, really in any authority. Many of you are in a, a overseeing people and you're in positions of authority. It's so important for us to not take that for granted. But notice in verse 4 he says, For this thing... You shall not go up a fighter against your brother and let every man return to his house. That's the advice of the man of God coming straight from God himself. For this thing is from me. This thing is from me. And therefore they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from attacking Jeroboam. And the interesting thing is, is that God knew in advance, and we looked at this last week, that what Rehoboam was going to do, God knew what he was going to do. And he had already put the contingency plan into motion by having Ahijah uh, sometime before this speak to Jeroboam concerning God tearing apart the kingdom away from Solomon. Yet this wouldn't happen until after Solomon's death. So God already had something in motion and he was just waiting. And he knew ultimately what Rehoboam was going to do. Rehoboam had the choice to make, but he, he followed the dictates of his own heart instead of um, listening to the elders' uh, uh, advice by speaking nicely to the people that they might be endeared to him and he would rule over them and they would love him. But instead he spoke harshly to them. So verse 5, notice it says, So Rehoboam dwelt in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. Now there are towns in Judah in verses 6 through 10 that we're going to read, and they're all within this red circle that I've got on a map right above me. Really all of this is in the land of Judah just west of the uh, Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. All these little towns and every one of these towns that we're reading here in verse 6 through 10 are located here. And, and, and remember, this was Rehoboam, he dwelt in Jerusalem and he built cities for defense. Now, why would he do that? Because he's expecting a war. And for good reason. Everybody's angry at one another, the north versus the south, and he's ramping things up because he knows things are coming. And so, and he built Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Beth Zur, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Merishah, Ziph, Adorim, Lachish, Azekah. Zorah, Ajalon, and Hebron, which are in Judah and Benjamin. Notice, fortified cities. And he fortified the strongholds and put captains in them and stores of food, oil, and wine. And when we go to Israel, we visit some of these places. And they're ruins now, but you can see the cisterns that they dug for water so they could sustain themselves. We go into the areas where they kept the food and the grain and the oil and the wine. And you can see some of the old bottles still there. You know, that they've uncovered. And, and this is what they did to fortify those cities. And also in every uh, city, verse 12, he put shields and spears and made them very strong, having Judah and Benjamin on his side. So this Rehoboam would naturally, he would do all these things because he wasn't worried necessarily about the foreign enemies as much as he was worried about defending the southern kingdom from Jeroboam and the northern kingdom. And again, a very unfortunate thing. And we see this even happening in the church, don't we? It's unfortunate, but even within the church, times like this as well, instead of seeing each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, church fellowships find themselves competing against one another. And you think of how foolish that is. I'm not gonna, we're not going to compare ourselves. We ought not to compare ourselves with our brothers and sisters down the road. May God bless them, you know. And hopefully they're praying for us like we're praying for them. 
We're not against one another. We should be for one another. We may differ doctrinally on some things, but is that worth you know, trashing each other and canceling each other and, and just being, uh, holding everybody in suspicion? We should never do that. But there are issues um, in our culture that the entire church should stand up against united, you know, even if we differ on certain doctrinal issues. You know, there's things that we ought to stand up for. Because one of the things that the devil loves to do, and one of his great tactics, is to divide and conquer. And he divided Israel right here at this pivotal moment in Israel's history. And through this division, the nation would become weaker and weaker. And because of their moral and their spiritual weakness and compromise, God's judgment would ultimately come upon them on each side of the kingdom due to their idolatry, their unbelief. And both kingdoms in due, in due time would be led away captive. The first, the northern, to uh, Syria in 722 B.C. And then the southern two tribes just 100 or so years later, 150, 126, whatever it is, 126 years later, they would fall to the, Babylon, or, uh, the Babylonians. And the thing is, is um, generals do this today. When they're conquering a, a city, they, they divide and they conquer. And the enemy of our souls... He's been doing this ever since the time began. His tactic hasn't changed because his old methods work so well. He doesn't have to pull out anything new because the old works so well. And in the garden, think about how he, right in the very beginning, in Genesis, in chapter 3, what happened? Satan divided and he conquered. Did he go after Adam and Eve together? No, he got Eve by herself. Yea, has God said... Oh, God knows that once you eat of this, you'll become like him, knowing good from evil. He's keeping back something from you, Eve. You need to find out, because God loves you, and he wouldn't withhold any good thing from you. But God knows that if you just take a bite, you can be like him. He's jealous of you. And the whisper gets into her head. He divides and he conquers. And that's exactly what he did. He went after Eve, the weaker vessel. And then Adam, seeing his wife, he fell into sin too. He, take, he took of the fruit that they were not to eat, and they both ate, and they both were aware of their nakedness. Going on here in verse 13 now, in Second Chronicles 11, it says, And from all their territories, notice, so you got this rift now, and uh, from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel took their stand with him, meaning with Rehoboam. And, and the Levites naturally would, because where is Jerusalem, the center of their religious services? And where is the temple? It's in Jerusalem. And where is Jerusalem? It's in Judah. It's really right on the corner, right on the edge of uh, Judah and Benjamin. It's right, it straddles the line. And so naturally, the Levites, that was their whole thing, to be at the temple, to serve in the temple. So naturally, in all the territories, because there were priests and Levites all over the place, and they served in their courses throughout the year, and now they're thinking, we've got to get back. We've got to get back to Jerusalem. We find ourselves up here, and now Jeroboam hates Rehoboam, but that's where the temple is. That's where God told us to go to sacrifice. That's where we take Passover. You know, that's where we have the Feast of Tabernacles and, the, you know, and all of the feasts. How can we do that up here? The temple's not up here. So, verse 14, For the Levites left their common lands and their possessions in Israel, the northern part, and they came to Judah in the southern and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected the Levites from serving as priests to the Lord. So, to, make, to add insult to injury, they get up there and they could have made a makeshift altar, which is what they really did, but they shunned the Levites. And instead, Jeroboam... He puts different men in there. And so now the line is drawn in the sand, isn't it? So Jeroboam is going to go into this devilish direction. And seeing that the worship in Jerusalem had been so well established for quite a long time by now, the only way he could keep people in his kingdom in the northern ten tribes is to lead them and allow them to worship false gods. And that's exactly what he did. And so the priests, the Levites, were rejected. They fled. They went to Rehoboam in Jerusalem. And they continued to follow the Lord. Now verse 15, then he appointed for himself 
uh, and this is Jeroboam in the northern ten tribes, he appointed for himself priests for the high places, for the demons, (laughs) and the calf idols which he had made. Has anybody ever noticed this figure, the Baphomet? It's at the Satanic Temple, there's one in Detroit, and there's one in, uh, there's another one in a, in a few other places, and they're they're going up all over the place in the United States now. These aren't the ones that everybody's uh, not tearing these down, although there was one recently, but I don't think he went to jail. No. Uh, so anyway, th- this um, this word for demons here in verse 15 literally is uh, the word. Um, it's Sabir, or Seder. It's a he-goat. So even back in Jeroboam's time, they worshipped these devils, these idols, and they were, they were satyrs, and they were half man, half goat. As you see, the Baphomet, which is the symbol of Satan on the throne with two kids looking up, very sick, twisted thing. But this is why they, they had this, this uh, he-goat symbol is demonic, and this is where it came from right here. And it goes way back to this time. And you'll notice, too, that Jeroboam built these two centers of worship. One was in, now we know that Judah is in the southern part to the west of the Sea of Galilee, but just to the north of this area was Bethel, and then there's a place called Dan up in the north. And Jeroboam, obviously, his jurisdiction is over all of this. So he set up two centers of worship and basically gave the people what they wanted he gave them what they wanted. You want to worship idols? Because they, they, they had, all the surrounding areas were worshiping idols. We just want to be like them. We're tired of worshiping God. So we'll worship idols. And that's exactly what they did. And Jeroboam led them in this treachery, in this spiritual adultery against God. And so they began to worship these satyrs, these calf idols which he had made. And um, again, they were set up in Bethel and in Dan. And again, when we go to Israel, we go to this, this place in Dan up in the north. It's just right below uh, Lebanon. It's a really beautiful land up there, but we, they, they've uncovered this, this very altar, and you can go visit it. And we are actually standing there reading this very passage that we're looking at tonight. Remembering what had happened here. They used to sacrifice babies on this altar. The altar has been torn apart, but they made a makeshift one where you can kind of see what it would have looked like. But that's where all of these abominable things, this worship happened, was in Dan and in Bethel. And they had golden calves. Does that ring a bell with Israel when they came out of uh, Egypt? What did they do first when Moses was up on the mountain waiting for 40 days? They built, and was it Exodus 32? You can see where they built the golden calf. Nothing has really changed. Fast forward a few hundred years, and now we're here. You know, same spot. So, in 1 Kings chapter 12, um, this is what Jeroboam did. Let me just read it to you. It says in 1 Kings 12, verse 25, it says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and he dwelt there. And also he went out from there, and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. So he's nervous about people going to Jerusalem for the obvious reason, because that's where God had put his altar and where the sacrifices were to be. God had placed it there, and now they're doing something there. And um, and so and, and this is what his thought was in verse 27. He says, If these people go to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So it's a very logical thing that he's thinking, and he's thinking rightly. And it says, therefore, the king asked advice, and he made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. So here he's trying to hold the people that he's trying to be king over. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Do you know that's the same phrase that Aaron said when he made the golden calf in Exodus 32? That's the same exact phrase that's recorded in Scripture. It's amazing. 
Here are your gods, O Egypt, or O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one up in Bethel in the northern, or just above Jerusalem, a few miles, and the other he put in Dan, way in the north. And now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, and he made shrines on the high places, and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, which is just a week and a day or something like that away from the, um, the, the feast that they would do in Jerusalem. So he was, uh, again, um, what, what do they call that? Um, uh, modeling it or a, a counterfeit is really the word I wanted. And so he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed priests of the high places which he made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. And so they're really in deep trouble by doing this on so many levels. And yet Jeroboam led them in this devil, demonic worship and trying to hold the people. So back in our in 2 Chronicles eleven sixteen, it says, And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. And so really what we're seeing here is exactly what Jeroboam had been hoping wouldn't happen. His worst nightmare is now coming true. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong. Notice, underline this in your Bible, it's in verse 17. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, he was strong for three years. Underline three years. And why was he strong? It tells us, because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. He was doing the right thing for three years. And then Rehoboam took for himself his wife, Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and of Abihel, the daughter of Eliah, the son of Jesse. And she bore him children, Jeush and Shamariah and Zaham. And after her, he took Maacah, the granddaughter of Absalom. Remember, Absalom was one of uh, David's sons. And she bore him Abijah. Remember that word. Underline that word because he's going to be the next king of Judah after Rehoboam, after his 17-year reign comes to an end. This son from Maacah, his name is Abijah. He is the firstborn from the woman Maacah. He is going to be the next king. And then he lists his other brothers, Atei and Ziza and Shelomith. Now, verse 21, it says, Now Rehoboam loved Maacah, the granddaughter of Absalom, more than all his wives and his concubines, for he took 18 wives and 16 concubines. Isn't one wife enough? And he begat 28 sons and 60 daughters. 28 sons and 60 Six zero daughters, 18 wives, six, 60 concubines. Where did he learn to do that? I wonder what was in his life. I wonder what caused him to think this was okay. Hmm, could it be Solomon? Yes, it was. He learned this from his dad. There's an old adage that says the apple doesn't fall, doesn't fall far from the tree. So where does he see... He saw his father do this, have a big, huge, I mean, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines or something like that. After three or four, it gets really dizzying. I mean, did he know these ladies' names? Hey, what's your name? What's your name? He didn't, anyway. Where did he learn this? Of course he learned it from his father. And so what is the point of all of this? You know, what we do as parents, if you're a parent of a child or you have grandchildren, the things that you say, the way that you act, the things that you do, they are very important. They are very important. And because what you do and what you say, remember that little ears and little eyes are watching and they're modeling themselves after you. The responsibility of being a parent is huge. It's huge. 
I remember when, uh, before our daughter was born, I, the, 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 there was something about the, you know, as long as Ariana was still in Kathy's womb, you know, things were pretty easy. But as soon as she was born, oh my goodness. The accountability, the fear, and the joy. Again, I don't want to miss the joy of having a child. It's the greatest thing in the world. There's no doubt about it. But as a dad, especially with a young girl, it's my daughter. You know, it just hit me between the eyes. I'm like, God, I got to do this right. I want to be a good example to her. I don't want to stumble her in any way. And I think that's the desire of every parent, isn't it? I mean, nobody really wants to stumble their child, but, it, but walking with the Lord and walking with that kind of accountability and walking as if God is next to you, which he is, it takes some doing. You've always got to be on. You've always got to be thinking. I like what Paul says. He says, walk circumspectly, not as fools, because the days are evil. And I love that idea, circumspectly. What is circum? When you're walking circumspectly, circum means around, and speckly means to see. So as I'm walking, I'm realizing that I'm looking around. I'm aware of my surroundings. I'm aware of what people are looking at me. Yes, I'm in a fishbowl. And if you're a Christian, you're, you're living in a fishbowl. Get used to it. And as a result, we need to walk circumspectly. I need to walk in such a way because people are watching me. They're watching you. You might not even be aware they're watching you, and they're watching you. They're watching the things that you say. They're watching what you eat. They're watching what you do with your phone. They're watching the shows you watch. They're watching uh, the things you're listening to. And your kids are watching what you watch and listening to what you listen to. And none of us here are perfect, and if I don't think there's, a, there's not a perfect parent in the room, if you're honest. There's only one perfect parent, and that's God. He's the perfect parent. I'm not so perfect. Did you, did you ever wish you could just say, Lord, can I just rewind the tape about 16 years? <laughs> can we go back and do this again? I would still blow it, but I think I'd be a little better at it. But I would still make horrible mistakes, but maybe not as few, or maybe not as many. But see, this is why it's so important to take these things uh, very seriously and, and to be the very best examples for our kids. Notice in verse 22, And Rehoboam appointed Abijah the son of Maacah. Remember, this was the son that Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, bore to Rehoboam and his firstborn. And he made him, notice, out of all of um, Rehoboam's sons, he made Abijah the son of Maacah. And he had many wives. And many sons, he made one of them chief to be leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. How do you think that made the other brothers feel? Pretty mad. Daddy's boy. Your daddy's favorite. Did daddy slip you some money to go get ice cream today? He didn't give us anything. He told us to go out in the field and pick, you know, fruit. But did he give you a $5 bill to go to Bill Gray's? Of course, you're going to need at least three $5 bills to do that today. Daddy's boy, mama's boy. Notice in verse 23, Rehoboam, he dealt wisely. Again, one of the few things that he did right. He dealt wisely. In other words, this word wisely in the original Hebrew means to, he acted with discernment and understanding. That's literally what the word means. And he dispersed, and think of the wisdom of this, he, he dwelt, dealt wisely, dispersed some of his sons throughout all the territories of Judah and Benjamin to every fortified city, and he gave them provisions in abundance, and he also sought many wives for them. So he's appeasing them. He's separating them, making them wealthy, and making them fat and happy. Because I've chosen one. He didn't want all the sons hanging around with nothing to do but stir up jealousy about Abijah and create conspiracy and, um, because he wanted to make Abijah king. And there was something uh, that perhaps Rehoboam had learned concerning uh, his grandfather David because Solomon, although showing mercy to 
one of his stepbrothers. Initially, he had to execute him because of his treachery. And it tells us in, um, that David, according to 2 Samuel chapter 3, he had six sons born to him in Hebron, where he had served for, uh, as king for seven years. And the first three sons, were they died by various means, mainly through murder. And Adonijah, his fourth son, thought he was a shoo-in to be king, but he didn't realize that God had already chosen Solomon of Bathsheba to be king. Adonijah was the rightful heir to the throne, but God told him, that's not going to be the one, David. It's going to be through Bathsheba, and it's going to be Solomon. So while he was preparing, uh, Adonijah, that is, after his three younger brothers died, um, or murdered, he murdered one of them, or actually it was Absalom. It's a long story. We've read it before. But while he was preparing to be king, he he thought he was a shoe-in. He's getting horses, getting on the robes and making himself look good in the mirror and shaving and looking really good, calling CNN and Fox News to come and take interviews. Yeah, I'm going to be the king. Not the one of Memphis, okay? Not the one of Memphis. But I'm going to be the king. Meanwhile, Bathsheba says, David, God had made Solomon king. You remember this. And David is old at this time. And he says, she said, you better do something because he's about ready. they're about ready to make him king because you haven't named your successor yet and you're on your deathbed. You're getting ready to die, David. And so Sol- David had Solomon anointed to be king at the Gihon Spring and Adonijah heard of it. He feared for his life. He held on the horns of the altar in the temple hoping for mercy and Adonijah was brought before Solomon and Solomon spared his life and told him to go home. Now, we're not going to read all of this, but I would encourage you just to write down these couple of scriptures because a very similar thing happens. The bottom line here is he goes before Solomon and this guy is going to be a problem to, um, to the king. He's going to be a problem to Rehoboam. I'm sorry, to, to uh, Solomon. And Solomon says, you better go home. In other words, I don't want to see you again. And so it wasn't long after that. It's recorded in 1 Kings 14 where Adonijah finally comes to Bathsheba and says, just give me one of David's wives to, you know, that he could uh, shack up with. And Solomon heard about it. He's like, you know what? After the mercy that I gave to you, you know, I'm gonna, you're done. And he put him to death. He put Adonijah to death. He gave uh, Rehoboam, going back now to Rehoboam, he gave his sons numerous things, um, uh, things to do and gave them wealth and responsibility in different towns through Judah and Benjamin. And this may have been, again, one of the smartest things he ever did, but his sons weren't, they weren't left to idleness. Do you have too much time on your hands? Some say that uh, time, idleness, is the devil's playground. I've heard that phrase. And if you're one of those folks who's got a lot of time on your hands, I'd encourage you to get involved. Get involved in in, in serving. There's plenty of things even to do here in this church. There's people to minister to. There's things to do. Because if you're like me, I don't do well. I, I, don't, I don't like being idle for too long. I, I can only go on vacation for so long. After about the sixth day or seventh or eighth day when I'm on vacation, I'm ready to come back and get back in the action again. I just, I don't, I don't do well. And I got spare time, and I'm not back in my normal natural habitat with a Bible in my hand in my office. But do you have too much time on your hands? If you do, get busy. Get busy serving the Lord. Sit at his feet and certainly get filled up, but then get out and, and, and help and, and do things and minister to the people of God and to the church. You'll be more fruitful, and you'll also give less opportunity for the devil to take advantage of you. We're not going to get into chapter 12, but let me just read to you a a prelude for next week. What happens after this moment here, 
When it says that Rehoboam dealt wisely and he dispersed his son throughout all the territories, now there's some things that happened in between that moment and then when we get into chapter 12. And let me just read to you 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 22 through 28. It says, And now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him, God, to jealousy with their sins, which they committed, more than all their fathers had done. For they, built, they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and wooden images. These are Asherahs, they call them. They're, they're basically, they're, they're poles, and they look, they're basically phallic symbols. And this is the way they worshipped uh, these false gods, this uh, feminine deity of Asherah. That's the way they would worship them. They built high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also perverted persons in the land. These are men who had given themselves uh, over to uh, offering themselves physically uh, for sexual pleasure, for in worship of these false gods. It was basically like a temple orgy is really what it is. Sorry to be so graphic, but it was, this is what they did back then, and this is how they worshiped their false gods. And they were also perverted persons in the land, and they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And here it is, because when we get into chapter 12, and I'll read this again next week before we get into chapter 12, but just to kind of give you a foreshadow of what's going to happen, Israel began to do this. And remember, back in, what was it, um, in verse uh, 17 of chapter 11, it says that, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, remained strong for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So now, after three years transcribes, now they're thinking, we're going to get into this other stuff. They started uh, compromising. And, and then by the fifth year, and this is where it comes in, they were doing all these things, worshiping these false gods. And it says in verse 25 in 1 Kings 14, it says, and it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, so three years, they were doing good, and now that fourth year, they begin to slide, slide, slide. So by the fifth year, they're committed to this idolatry. And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything away. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made, and then King Rehoboam in their place, he made bronze shields in their place and committed them into the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them and then brought them back to their guard, into their guard room. And so you have these gold shields that have been taken away by Shishak, king of Egypt. Why did God allow this foreign king from Egypt to come and ransack his own people? Why did he do it? Why did he allow it? Because of their idolatry. Now, the northern ten tribes had been hook, line, and sinker. They had been worshiping devils ever since, from the very beginning. And now Judah's flirting with it as well. And God allows Egypt to come up and take everything away. And I think there's something about the, you know, the symbolism of the gold shields that Solomon had originally made. And now they're stolen, and now what does he do? He takes an even lesser precious of a metal. What's below gold? It's silver, isn't it? And then there's bronze. It's not as valuable as silver, so they're, they're, you can just see the degradation of the kingdom. And that's exactly what sin does, doesn't it? And as we go on through the kings of Judah, we're going to see that there were a handful of really good kings, they were a handful, but the rest of them were evil, just like their northern counterpart. Everyone in the northern ten tribes, every single king, worshipped the devil. They were worshipping idols. And thank God for men of God. Remember, we come back to that phrase, the man of God. Thank God for men of God, like Hezekiah and like Josiah, these wonderful men who said, we're not going to stand for this. We're going to go back to the old paths. We're going to go back to the God of our fathers. And we're going to worship Jehovah God. 
it's good to worship God, isn't it? You know, never forget the Lord. And don't allow anything in your life, don't allow anything to take you away from that central worship of God. Worship Him. He deserves all of our praise, our adoration. And you know, when you think about all that God has done for me and you, it's a very natural thing, isn't it, to give him praise and honor? I mean, after all, not only did he forgive me of my sins, but now I have this blessed hope. I know where I'm going. Do you know where you're going tonight? I know where I'm going. And you should know, if you're a believer in Christ, you should know where you're going. You're not perfect. You're going to mess up from time to time. We all do. We confess it and we keep, we keep climbing. We keep walking. We keep abiding. We keep watching for Jesus. We're not going to be perfect until we are perfected in his sight. But we're still going to be, we're not going to be God. We will always be his creation. But we will, I'm looking forward to the day of being free from this body of death. This old nature that, the new nature is pushing it down. And thank God for that. But every now and then, our old nature likes to bubble up. Something nasty comes out. We have to suppress it. We have to say, God, forgive me, and say, the Spirit of God, cleanse my heart. Didn't Paul the Apostle know that? He says, why is it that the, the good things that I ought to do, those are the things that I don't do, and the things that I don't do, those are the things that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And God breaks through and says, I, the Lord, am going to deliver you from that body of death, Paul, at the rapture. Are you looking forward to the blessed hope, the rapture? If you are, then let's stand <laughs> and let's give him thanks. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the, the history here, Father, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's, it's history, but there's so much here, Father, for us to understand and to glean from. Lord, to see the way that you have dealt with man and, and, and to see it throughout the Bible and, and to realize that we're no different than any of these people, Father. And yet you deal with us in such, you're so merciful, God. You're so merciful and you're so gracious, Lord. And may we fall more in love with you each second of the day. So, Lord, hold us and keep us and keep us in your tender care. And I pray for all my brothers and sisters here tonight, Lord. Would you fill them with your encouragement, fill them with your spirit, and bless their day tomorrow, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you.